Hey, it's Mike Howie here. Before we get started, I need to be real with you. In this interview, we talk a lot about suicide. We talk about mental health, about self-harm, about suffering, about suicidal ideation and tendencies. We talk about people and non-human animals. Sometimes we generalize, sometimes we're specific. This episode may not be for you, and that's totally okay. If you're having concerns about your well-being, if you're having a hard time, that's okay too. Remember that I love you. Then visit crisisservicescanada.ca for Canadian friends or suicidepreventionlifeline.org for those down south. Try talking to a friend. If you'd rather reach out to me and chat, just hit me up. I like this world best with you in it. Now, here's episode 618. It's already there in nature, and it's one of these categories um, that, again, we cannot restrict to only Homo sapiens. It's much more widespread, and it doesn't mean that it will look the same. This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers brought to you by the Fur Bears. Have you ever looked over at your cat or your dog or your lizard and wondered, are they happy? If you're like me, you probably have. But have you ever asked deeper questions, like are they fulfilled? How do they view themselves in relation to the world? And do they consider life after death? I have, but I think it was 4 a.m. on a Tuesday morning and I'd been up for 23 hours. But that's what ethicists do. Sometimes they ask the hard questions. And Dr. David Peña Guzman asked one that I have in all honesty never even considered. Can non-human animals commit suicide? As an ethicist and associate professor of humanities and liberal studies at San Francisco State University, it's David's job to ask those questions, which he addresses in his paper, Can Non-Human Animals Commit Suicide? It was published late last year in the journal Animal Sentience. What he may not have been prepared for was putting his brilliant paper on the subject in front of me, then dealing with me peppering him with questions for over an hour. And some of these questions, not my best. But Professor Peña Guzman put up with them all, and we spent more than an hour discussing his paper, the implications of increased awareness in the realm of animal cognition and sentience, and a whole bunch of rambling from me. It was a ton of fun. David even said so in a follow-up email that I choose to believe was in no way sarcastic. Now, a couple of housekeeping things before we dive in. I hate Microsoft. Well, I don't actually hate anyone or Microsoft, but computers can be frustrating. Now, between Skype's weird hit and miss connectivity and Microsoft's decision that the world outside would actually end if my computer didn't download updates while I was doing this interview, a couple of bits of David's side got a little garbled. For the most part, I was able to clean it up, and you probably won't notice. But around the 43-minute mark of the interview, I had to take a 15-second chunk out. I apologize to you, and I apologize to David. I don't apologize to Microsoft. But on a happier note, I asked, and you delivered. I got a ton of notes from people on this subject, and a few others, via Patreon and the Facebook page for questions I can ask interview subjects. I tried to get to as many as I could, and if you have more, send them over. I'll see if we can get David back. Now, remember, this is going to be a patron-only feature soon, hearing about who's coming up for interviews and being able to ask them questions through me. 
Learn more at patreon.com slash Defender Radio. Now, let's dive in. I read your paper twice. I talked about it. I thought about it. And I feel a sense of existential dread. And I feel like that's really the purpose of academic philosophy. (laughs) I think you're not wrong about that. (laughs) Well, why don't we start by talking about how you ended up doing what you do? Because it's a very interesting field. uh, And I would maybe group it into the the large concept of anthrozoology that's kind of growing right now. but you, you teach in the liberal arts, liberal studies program at San Francisco State University. Uh, clearly, philosophy is your go-to, I would take it. Uh, although, do tell me I'm horribly wrong if I'm horribly wrong. How, how does one end up in the position to, to even be having the thought of, do non-human animals commit suicide or die by suicide? Apologies. Um, no, that's that's right. When well, to start with, my background is in philosophy. That's what my master's and my PhD were in, mm-hmm. and so my training intellectually has been in a number of philosophical traditions. One of which is the philosophy of science. So I have been trained to sort of ask philosophical questions about scientific practices, scientific institutions, scientific research. And so in a lot of my work, that's precisely what I do. I look at existing knowledge produced by the natural sciences. um, And then I ask questions that I think that research raises, but that go beyond purely scientific concerns. So there are cases where scientific research forces us to ask philosophical questions, and that's sort of where I come in. Uh, you can certainly see this in in the physical sciences that raise questions about the nature of the universe, uh, the ultimate structure of reality. And you can see that also in the life sciences, uh, where it raises questions about the nature of the living and different kinds of animals. And so my personal interest in relation to the life sciences is animal research, research into the cognitive, behavioral, and social capacities of non-human animals. And uh, that's something that I've been working on for a couple of years. And what I do is I bring together scientific and philosophical sources to ask questions that are not exclusively scientific, but are not also exclusively philosophical, but happen somewhere in between those two fields. And you see this with this uh, paper that I published last year, the journal Animal Sentience, about animal suicide. Now, the question about how I came to ask that that question in the first place, um, it's, it's a little interesting. So I was asked to be on a panel for a professional conference uh, devoted to the place of animals in scientific research and the ethics of scientific research that uses animal models. As part of this panel, I was asked to speak about the concept of animal descent. So do animals have the capacity to say no to various kinds of research protocols? Because if that's the case, then it raises interesting questions about how to do science ethically when we're using animals as research models. And as I started thinking about this more narrow question in the field of science ethics, I began broadening my thinking about what animal descent might entail. Um, And then I started thinking about this category of suicide as a form of descent, as a form of negation. And I realized that 
there is a scientific literature about animal suicide, which surprised me. I didn't expect it. And so what I did is I jumped into that literature, which is not very big, uh, but it, it is there. And I started asking questions about what the implications might be, both for the field of suicide research and for the field of animal studies, if we open ourselves up to the possibility that some animals might be capable of what we could call suicidal behavior. And we know from the ethological literature that there, there is a lot of documentation of self-destructive behaviors in non-human animals. The question is, can we classify that as suicide or suicidal behavior? And this is where my research comes in. And that's it, it's one of those things where you, you hear the question and based on my experience, so I'm uh, uh, for those who are listening for the first time and for you, uh, my background is journalism, and I just have a real interest in life sciences uh, in the natural world. Um, and I'm going to be working on a, a BSc soon. But uh, I come at this from that journalism sort of point of view of gather as much as I can, spin it around and try and make it as short as possible. Uh, and one of the things that immediately jumps at me when I, when you say that is how can you ever possibly know without asking them? And I, and I feel like that is both the worst first question, but also potentially the worst last question I could ask. So I'm going to just throw it out there now. Um, the uncertainty of this, uh, how, how do you manage that? I mean, I think you, you very eloquently, uh, and I'm going to get to that specifically in your implications section. You you make a uh, an incredibly eloquent statement about why we need to ask, but without the ability uh, to directly communicate and say, "Hey, how you feeling today, Norm?" Can we truly know what non-human animals intend when some of these behaviors are exhibited? Well, I think that is the sixty thousand dollar question, insofar as it points to the core obstacle in any scientific research involving non-human animals. Um, in this case, we're talking about suicide, but this really is a knife that cuts across the board. How can we know how deep the animal mind goes without having verbal reports from those animals? And scientists have, I mean, they're trained to be clever to ask questions and design scientific protocols to try to get around this issue. Because if we begin from the standpoint of demanding verbal reports before we draw any conclusions, then by definition, we will never draw any conclusions about the emotional or cognitive lives of, of animals. But it is true that we must begin from a position of uncertainty because we do not have access direct unconditioned access um, to the inner lives of, of these creatures. And so we have to navigate a lot of these conclusions concerning their capacities, be they psychological or behavioral, in a nuanced way. And I think this is an important point that I highlight in my piece. Um, a number of people have written responses to this article, mm -hmm. and a number of them sort of I felt imputed a stronger argument to me than I was willing to make, um, because the argument that I make here is precisely an argument from uncertainty, mm -hmm. in which if we look at the available evidence that our best data concerning the behavioral, um, 
neurological and biological processes that are involved in observed self-destructive behaviors, we cannot rule out the possibility of suicide. Um, one of the trickier parts of the account that I lay out uh, of my theory of suicide in this piece is that I actually do not require the notion of intent. I do not believe that in order for a behavior to count as suicidal, it has to be um, preceded by what we could call an intent to die. And so this is an aspect that makes my theory minoritarian in the field of suicide research, um, that I think there are a lot of suicides, of course, that happen because the agent intends to die or intends to bring about their own demise for a lot of reasons. I don't think that's a necessary condition. And in this and another follow-up piece, I lay out a number of examples of human suicides that we make sense of scientifically without appealing to the notion of intent. And the reason for this is that those of us who work in the field of animal studies are very familiar with this challenge, that as soon as you require something like intent or any other kind of mental state, belief, desire, you have this problem of inaccessibility. The animal mind is opaque to us, and we have to figure out ways to talk around that opacity. Something that comes up very early, um, and I, I, I don't have a visual for you, but for everyone, I think this is important. Normally, when I read a study, I read it on my phone or on a tablet or on my laptop, and I make notes in a WordPad file. Um, I've got it all neatly squared away. I currently have two piles of paper. Um, I dropped them as soon as you answered the Skype call, because I'm that professional. But I've got two piles of paper. Each page has at least two scribbles and several circles on it. Some lines have stars next to them. I also have a notepad file with questions. And I feel so wildly disorganized but at the same time excited because it's new for me to be really kind of digging into this. Um, the only time I think I've really, really kind of gotten into this kind of philosophical discussion is with Mark Beckoff, who you frequent. Um, and he's, he's just a lovely guy to, to chat with, um, especially if you get into talking about whiskey. But one of the <laughs> things uh, you reference from Beckoff and Sherman in a, uh, a Trends in Ecology and Evolution uh, report was that there is, quote, no acid test for determining degrees of self-cognizance across all taxa. Uh, and my, my note on this is, do we, and I, uh, the implication of my question, do we as humans want to categorize and put things in boxes? And is that why this paper in one way, again, I think it's brilliant and fascinating, and I love the conversations I've been having after reading it. But at the other side, make me kind of want to throw my phone across the room and never think about philosophy again. Um, is that something that humanity chooses to do in some way or that we reflexively do and say, all of these things should neatly fit in boxes and therefore we can make conclusions about them? Whereas very much what you're saying is this stuff doesn't fit in boxes and we don't know. Well, I think the history of ideas, especially in the West, is by and large a history of classification and taxonomy, mm -hmm. uh, where we do like to put things in boxes. One of the most radical implications of Darwin's theory of evolution via natural selection in the 19th century was that when you take the natural world as your object of inquiry, those categories go out the window. 
there are no essences that carve nature at its joints. When you look at nature, when you look at the domain of life and living, all you have are differences of degree, not differences of kind. Differences between species are not absolute. The very boundary of what defines a species is not clear. Up until now, in the 21st century, we still do not know how to define what a species is, because whatever concept you have for it, whatever definition you give, will admit of a number of counterexamples, because nature is a continuum, and uh, there are hyper-complex relations of interdependence that prevent the success of that classifying impulse that often we bring to the natural world. With that in mind, when we try to classify things into, let's say, those, are, those that are conscious and those that are not conscious, one of the reasons that that particular question um, has such a strong pull on us, that the reason that it seems so important is because, according to a lot of philosophers, it's a morally significant distinction. Mm -hmm. So the difference between the inert and the conscious is a moral Mission. Because, of course, our ethical responsibilities and our moral duties apply only to those beings that are sentient, that suffer, and that in some way have a perspective on the world. So there are additional reasons, I think, for that particular classification between which creatures are conscious and which ones are not. Um, and I think ethicists have been engaging the natural sciences uh, much more recently precisely because of this overlap between these two very different fields. Yeah, and I can't remember yeah. if it was Beckoff or if it was um, Hal Herzog, and I can't remember the school he was out of uh, before he retired, but he was, he, I think I think he lived in South Virginia, or is that, a, is, does Virginia have two sides? I can't remember. Um, <laughs> you guys have too many states. That's really the, uh, we should focus on that today. Uh, no, he, he's somewhere in that area. He's in this, the sort of the Southeast, um, and wrote in a book about the, one of the fundamental problems that we have in these conversations is that in order to understand the intelligence, the consciousness of animals, uh, non-human animals and determine whether or not, and this kind of skips ahead to your implications section, but, uh, whether or not we can or should be morally responsible for them. So I, I guess one could make the more clear argument of the difference between a goldfish and an ape, a great ape, um, a great ape. We, we recognize that there's this level of, uh, intelligence and empathy and all of these things that exist in a great ape that also exist in us, but in a goldfish, we don't see it. So it's okay if the cat gets the goldfish, I guess is kind of the, the thing. But in order to test that, we kind of have to test the animals. But by testing the animals, we're causing all these, like, it's just this weird moral conundrum of um, determining that. Uh, that also then leads into the much more subjective question of, does it really matter in some ways? Um, but that's more of a, I'd almost say like a vegan abolitionist concept. Um, and now I'm ranting and totally off topic. But yeah, I mean, and this depends on your philosophical commitments. How do you draw the boundaries of the moral community of those beings that matter morally? Some people uh, draw the line simply at sentience. If there is a being that feels pain and pleasure, it has moral interest, and we have to respect those interests, like an interest in not suffering. Mm -hmm. Some people draw those boundaries in a much more restricted way to say only beings that reach some threshold of 
cognitive performance or intelligence matter morally. And so they draw the lines a little bit different, uh, differently. Other people choose other categories or other criteria to sort of do that gerrymandering operation. So some people will say only animals that have language or only animals that have empathy. Historically, if you look at the history of moral theory and ethical theory, um, by and large, the most constant move has been to say, well, only human beings matter morally because only human beings have the relevant moral capacity, whatever it might be, rationality, language, empathy, etc. And as the science advances, especially the, the scientific study of animal behavior and animal cognition, as it moves forward, we realize that all these categories that we limited only to human beings and that we thought were exclusive to homo sapiens, they're actually much, much more widespread in nature than we realized. And this is essentially what I'm doing with the category of suicide, which also historically has been treated in an anthropocentric way. In other words, it's been assumed to apply apply only to one species. But again, in a post-Darwinian world, it's very difficult to expect capacities and certain kinds of behavioral displays to be limited only to one species, especially when you start finding parallels, similarities, isomorphisms that cut across species differences. Um, but you are right that sometimes the trick is not that those similarities aren't there, but that we don't see it. So one of the big questions that we have to ask is, what am I not seeing in these cases when I'm studying non-human animals, when I'm drawing a negative conclusion? Because it could be that we're simply not seeing something that is there, either because we're not asking the right questions or because we're not setting our experimental protocols in the right way. And this is where I think scientists have their work cut out for them because it does require a lot of curiosity, a lot of creativity um, in order to get that question right, to get an epistemically sound answer. And epistemic humility, by the way, trying to figure out what that meant for the first 30 seconds literally made me insane. Because if you Google epistemic, it says <laughs> the study or well, yes, the study of knowledge. But when I then read it in context, it made perfect sense. But we'll get to that. Um, one of the things that you you talk a lot about is free will, which for me and again, this is without any philosophy in my background, without uh, any any great time spent on this subject. As soon as I hear free will, I think theology. Uh, mm -hmm. That is how it's always been pre present in my life. Uh, and I grew up in a secular home. But free will, that concept has always been linked to Christianity or the, the, the God stories and so on. Um, but it actually is a, a very real, I mean, it's, you, you spend a fair bit of time discussing the concept of free will as well as the implications of free will in non-human animals and humans. Uh, so can we start, how do you, in, in sort of like that very simple ground that you're, you're quite good at doing, how do you explain what free will is for this context? So I agree with you that the concept of free will is essentially theological. Okay. And I use the concept only because it is an argument, there is an argument that is quite common that I encountered when moving through the literature on animal suicide and some related fields, uh, whereby people say, well, it would be impossible for an animal 
to self-destruct because they just don't have free will. They are just responding to natural causes and mechanically sort of putting out effects. So it's just an input-output mechanism. And because there's nothing inside, there is no um, voluntary action, there's no free will, by definition, the concept of suicide cannot be applied to animals. And so I use this concept, but I actually prefer to speak of voluntary action uh, rather than free will for that very reason, that I think free will, is, it has too much theological, philosophical, and conceptual baggage to do the kind of subtle work that we need a concept like it to do. But the point that I tried to make in the section on free will is that if we, if by free will, we just mean the ability to act out of our own desires, to act voluntarily, and if that's a requirement for suicide or the requirement for suicide, then we have no reason to assume that animals cannot engage in suicidal behavior because we have plenty of evidence that animals engage in voluntary action. Um, animals choose, they pursue different things based on their moods, they have preferences, and sometimes they act on them, and sometimes they don't. And so, for example, the Japanese primatologist Tetsuro Matsuzawa uh, has used that concept of free will in his research on chimpanzee behavior. And one of the arguments that I really like um, that he makes in one of his books on chimpanzee cognition is he says, once you accept that chimpanzees act when they want to act, and they don't act when they don't want to act, then you have to build that into your research and create a setting in which you're studying chimpanzees, but you give them the choice to either participate in the research or not, because they have voluntary action or free will. And so once you, once you accept that, it opens this gate, it opens a door for thinking about animals in a new way and it suddenly puts on the table discussions that may not have been on the table before. Of course, with the case of suicide, free will is very tricky. And the reason that it's very tricky is because our common everyday way of talking about suicide is precisely that we associate it with free will. Somebody wanted to end their life, and they did. But that, if you take it at face value, if you use this psychological, I'm sorry, this theological concept, it actually means that you don't accept a causal explanation of suicide that appeals to natural causes. And today, we mostly only accept natural causal explanations of behavior. Mm -hmm. So, for example, think about the case of somebody um, whose neurochemistry gets altered by a specific drug and their, um, their brain starts acting in very unexpected ways and they commit suicide, often we will say, well, the neurochemistry is the cause. These changes in neurochemistry caused their behavior, uh, which culminated in suicide. If you apply the classical concept of free will in the technical theological sense, you cannot accept that because by definition, free will means unconditioned, uncaused. And so I try to highlight this this sort of tension where if you apply the concept in a very strict traditional way as a way to exclude animals from the domain of suicide, you end up with a lot of conceptual problems. But if you allow the concept of free will to simply mean voluntary action, then you have to allow animals 
in this conversation because we know that they engage in action voluntarily or not. Um, but it is one of these um, areas of, of the paper that, that tap into sort of very heady abstract concepts. Mm. Um, it just so happens that because of my background, I feel very comfortable on that territory. And so I'm able to navigate the philosophical issues in relation to the scientific literature. Yeah, and again, for me, it's it's interesting. Uh, and I was joking about this with with a friend of mine who has a master's in philosophy um, up here, and saying when I read uh, a paper about biology, about ecosystems, about uh, evolution, what sort of all of these subjects that I'm interested in. I always feel relatively confident. Like so they say, okay, well, I'm going to make this argument and then here's my evidence. And the evidence is this clear chain, right? Here's a stack of studies. You can look at just, even just the abstracts and kind of get an idea of what they're talking about. With philosophy, you can have like a three-page statement, a really profound argument, and then just be like, because Aristotle. Um, and it can be very off-putting. Uh, but I think you do a great job of, of limiting that issue of you need to have gone and read all of this other stuff. Um, before you read this, um, which which certainly makes it easier, but it is it is a it is I think when you combine the concept of free will and the topic of suicide, um, like you, you need to drink when you're reading this sometimes. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm <laughs> well, teasing. It's I think when you're writing. <laughs> and I'm sorry to tease. It is it's a wonderful paper. I love reading it. I, I truly do. Uh, it's just philosophy is such a. I, I have to sit and think so much more actively uh, about philosophy and challenge my own thoughts as I go. What, one of the things I want to ask, so two parts here. One, uh, you talked about the mechanical animal sort of concept. Is that Descartes and is that still around? And sort of as a sub question, who's actually arguing that at the very least higher, like certain animals, uh, non-human animals are not sentient or cognizant or capable. Uh, like I, 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 with all of like, there are birds using tools, birds using tools. That was from movies at one point. And we're like, no, that's what they do now. Uh, so who's making the argument against some of this stuff? Right. So the notion of animals as autonoma, uh, automata, sorry, of course, it's a historical argument that, was quite common in the 17th and 18th century um, in Europe and later in North America that has shaped most of the discussions that we have about animals historically. And although there really isn't anybody out there that I know, at least, that will defend a classical Cartesian interpretation of animals as complicated clocks, mm. I think the inheritance of this kind of Cartesian mode of thinking has continued well into the 20th century. And one of the expressions of this Cartesianism in the natural sciences has been the rise and eventual fall of the behaviorist school in psychology that really saw animals as black boxes that simply have input-output dynamics, but that have no whatsoever, no emotional inner world. Um, and here you can think about um, the very famous historical experiments uh, by Pavlov and Skinner on animals designed to prove that an animal really is just a complicated mechanism where if you poke the right thing, you'll get the right um, output because there is no intermediary in the middle. There is no mind, there is no consciousness, there is no sentience. Now, 
behaviorism was so dominant in the first half of the 20th century that it really terms in which a lot of debates later were cashed out or in which they were framed. And although a lot of people moved away from behaviorism in the 1970s and 80s, when the cognitive revolution in psychology took place, um, I think we have been very good at moving away from behaviorism in our study of the human mind, but we have been quite slow at moving away from it in our study of animal minds. And there may be a lot of reasons for this, for this lag. Personally, I, I think it has something to do with the fact that we have an implicit collective interest in not really thinking very much about the complexity of animal minds, animal emotions, animal mental states, animal behaviors, in large because in a lot of fields of social life, we dominate animals and oppress them in ways that might be challenged um, by really thinking about them in a new light. So although there are no people, again, that will be straight up Cartesians, 17th century thinkers, um, there are a lot of people who will actively deny, for example, that animals have emotions, or that animals have understanding, or that animals communicate in any complex way. And again, I think it has to do, because often, however we, um, however we answer those questions, might have implications concerning the, the ethical and the moral question. Right. And I'm an ethicist, so I'm also trained to always have this question hovering in the back of my mind. What are the ethics and what are the ethical stakes in these discussions? Um, in the case of science, there's also the question of the ethics, as you mentioned before, of using these animals in research. So, for example, we know, let's just take chimpanzees, we know how extremely close to us they are, behaviorally, psychologically, cognitively. And once you accept that similarity, at some point you have to ask the question, well, are we justified then in doing the research that we've been doing to these creatures? Because we wouldn't do it to human beings. On what basis then do we do it to these animals? Mm. And that came up in some of my conversations. Um about this is what would be the cost to society if we were to suddenly say, oh, well, maybe we're actually quite similar. Um, and you think about it. And I, I think for some of us, we've, you know, you choose a lifestyle where it's not going to have a lot of influence, but for other people, um, it, it would turn their world upside down. And that's a, a fair thing to, to be considerate of, regardless of what the conversation is. Um, and uh, talking about death, though, this... I think this was probably the hardest part for me with all of this, just in, and not in terms of language or anything like that, but in, in terms of the, the actual questions that are asked of it and the awareness of death. So it's commonly said, this is reading from the paper, uh, commonly said to commit suicide, an agent must intend to bring about its own death, which animals cannot do because they cannot quote represent or quote conceptualize death in the first place. And as I thought about this and I tried turning it over in my head and thinking, well, what about this and what about that? I realized how skewed my own view of death is. Um, and even as someone like a secular person who was brought up without any religion at all, the concept of spirituality creeps into that thought. Um, the concept of uh, molecular nothingness and decay creeps into that thought. 
uh, like all of these different things. And then the traditions and all of that and the emotional components. And I really, I think this part of your paper for me broke down the walls I had in my mind on this subject because it made me realize how little grasp I have on such a basic concept uh, as what is death. Because I mean, from a technical point of view, it's just the end of a life process. That's all it is. It is the inevitable end. It's one of the defining traits of life is death. Um, but how do we how do we consider it elsewise? And how could non-human animals who don't have centuries of philosophers and ethicists and biologists explaining it along the way? Uh, and I, that was it. Was a very like. I don't want to call it a light bulb moment because a light bulb moment to me is always like, oh, I've got a solution. Uh, for me, it was very much a, ah, I don't know anything uh, moment. So, how- yeah, no, philosophical uh, light bulb moments are, ah, I have another problem to deal with <laughs> rather than I have a. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was very, it was a very unique experience, to be honest, like introspectively, just, just go, holy crap, I have no idea how I would explain this to someone. Uh, like, how, how do you explain this vast concept of the end of life? Uh, and I think it's very interesting, though, that you sort of, I think you you acknowledge that, but then you get into um, uh, members of the genus Pan relate to and process death. That that whole paragraph, I thought, really kind of brings it home that some of the things we as humans do to try and cope or understand or put into to logic and context what death is, we're seeing non-human animals do as well those rituals. Correct. And I mean, the concept of death is so primary in philosophy that it's quite difficult to talk about it. Um, Of course, the objective scientific definition, as you said, is just the end of a life cycle or the cessation of life activity, however you want to phrase it. But from the perspective of the being whose death is in question, Death is not just an objective fact. It's something much more radical. This is a philosophical point. Um, and a number of philosophers, and this is the existentialist tradition in, in philosophy, um, they make the argument that death is inconceivable in the technical sense. Why? Because I, a living being, armed with all kinds of uh, faculties of reason and memory and imagination, I cannot possibly imagine my own non-existence, my own non-existence. Um, one of the things that I find quite interesting about this philosophical tradition is that because death is so inconceivable, I mean, can I really imagine my own nothingness? It doesn't seem like I can. It, my head sort of hits a wall at that point. Because of that, that means that our relationship to death is not cognitive or intellectual. It is existential. Death is something that we fear, toward which we are heading, and that in many ways shapes our everyday behavior. Um, But we have much more affective or emotional, if you want to use those terms, relationship to it. And so it raises the question of what does it even mean to understand death? If it just means that you have a sense of when somebody is dead versus alive, and that you are deeply, deeply affected by the death of your loved ones, which I think seems right to me. I think that's as much as we can say about death. If that's how we think about death, then emerging research in primatology and marine biology suggests that a number of mammals, 
do have a concept of death. Um, there is a group of psychologists, for example, who are working in the UK. Uh, some of them, are, I think, are in Scotland. Um, who have been doing research on how chimpanzees react when one member of their group dies. I don't know if you um, story that was floating around social media last year, but a lot of people were talking about the saga of, of this orca whale in the Pacific Northwest that was carrying yes. its dead baby, mourning it for 17, 18, I forget exactly how many days. Um, and there is no way to make sense of that behavior um, other than the animal understands that its child, its offspring has died and can't let go until they have to. Um, and so this is also one of those philosophy meets science discussions, because if you just approach the question from a purely philosophical angle, you're not going to get a lot of traction when talking about animals because you are going to sound as if you're just conjuring up arguments. But then when you anchor them in scientific research with observations that allow you to say, no, look, this concept makes sense in relation to animals. Again, you have new possibilities on the table that it didn't seem you would ever have otherwise. That is a, a wonderful way to put that, because that was something that we were all watching with such intent and the conversations that were coming up were quite interesting because you did have uh, people like we know that orcas are, are highly intelligent, highly social um, and, and trying to determine like, well, is this grief? Is this mourning? Is this, is this questioning? Some people thought it was protest saying, look at what you did uh, to my child. And again, I think what's, what's fascinating and what you, you do such a, a wonderful job of is saying, uh, almost show me that we're wrong. Like just putting it out there. How how are you ever going to show? Like we know that this behavior in another species uh, would represent all of those things. If a human did that and was speaking, we could reasonably expect to hear those statements of I am grieving, I am mourning, I am questioning you, I am protesting what has happened and putting this out there for you to see. Um, and why wouldn't an orca also be able to have those responses? Uh, it's, it's a wonderful way of looking at it. Uh, so long, I think, as you can sort of couch it in some science, which you've done in this next bit, which I quite enjoyed uh, in a weird way. Uh, someone who has lived with mental health issues for so long. Uh, you talk about negative emotions and psychopathologies and self-destructive behavior parallels. Um, I'm going to kind of group these together because I think they, they work together well. Um, and I can say, you know, personal experience, I know that there are a lot of ways people deal with bad emotions or big emotions, I should call them up. There are no bad emotions. There's big emotions, big feelings. And you're just struggling to manage them. And you start doing stuff pretty much because uh, this this gives me some kind of release. Um, you know, healthy things to do are going for a run, which is what I did yesterday. Um, we won't talk about what I did after the run, but I went for a run. <laughs> so I did self-care. Um, and that's, you know, with my dog, I can watch her. And if she's anxious about something, I can watch her behaviors and start to see, okay, I'm going to distract her um, with this toy that's rewarding for her. Um, and I know with friends who are going through something difficult, it's like, all right, let's just talk about baseball, right? Let's talk about something else. We can do these things to distract, but if you don't distract, you do start to go inward. And we have seen and documented so clearly so many different species 
causing self-harm. Uh, the one that is always top of mind for me is mink on fur farms. I'm not sure how familiar you are with these, but uh, mink are normally solitary animals that live in large territory, spend a lot of time in water hunting and playing. And on uh, industrial type farms, they're kept in tiny cages lined up, no access to running water. And there is clear, and we, we have video, not just photos, but video of self-mutilation uh, in a way that is, it is disturbing to my core. And it's something you never unsee. Um, we know in captive animals in zoos, we see that pacing behavior and they'll start, uh, like they injure themselves because they are repeating behavior so frequently, which again is exactly what we see in humans. Um, so I found that part very compelling and I think it really kind of nails down some of the more philosophical side. Uh, like you said, like you're, you're pairing these two together. Is that sort of where you came at with this or is that just how it presented itself? I feel like I talked for 10 minutes. Oh, there. no worries. Um, so I think this is in many ways the thrust of the argument that I make. The thrust of the argument that I make is let's look at the available evidence that might be relevant. What do we have already on the books? And I'm here talking about the science, not about the philosophy. If we look at the very vast literature on animal welfare and um, animal mental health, especially under conditions of captivity, what we find across the board are at least three sorts of insights. And what I do in the paper is I put them together and then I ask the question, tell me why we cannot call this suicide or tell me why this doesn't open that door. And the three things that are there are, number one, the precursors to suicide. So there are a lot of emotional and psychological states that in human beings we universally recognize as precursors or causes or contributing factors for suicide, lethargy, depression, PTSD, etc. The evidence is that many, many animals experience those states. There is um, evidence for depression, learned helplessness, and anxiety, PTSD, even antisocial, borderline, and schizoid personality disorders in non-human animals. And so all these mental states that in humans, you know, we raise a red flag to say, hey, this, this is the sort of thing that under the right circumstances leads to suicidal behavior is already there in the case of animals. That's the first piece, the precursors. The second piece is the consequent. In human beings, many of these mental and emotional pathologies lead to suicidal self-destructive behaviors, um, self-harm, self-killing, etc. And I also catalog um, research that just brings together observational reports and uh, laboratory research that shows that, yes, we know animals do that too, as you point out with minks, and we know that about many more animals, that especially when they are in conditions of captivity, and especially when they have sort of internalized the fact that nothing they do will change it, start engaging in stereotypical behavior and self-behavior that extends from every, anything, quote unquote, simple as self um, basic self-harm to things as complicated as auto-cannibalism. Um, and that, I mean, that shakes you to your core to think that we bring an animal 
to do that. And so you have the precursor with the psychopathologies. You have the consequent with the psychological behavior. So you have two out of three. The third piece, and I also um, document the research showing that we have this in relation to animals, is simply the intermediaries that lead from A to B, which are the biological, chemical, neurological, and psychological pathways that lead from those emotional states to those behavioral outcomes. And again, I, I'm not a scientist. I'm not generating any new data. I'm simply bringing very different bodies of literature together to say, once you put these in conversations, you see something new. It begins by clearing away some prejudices that I think we have about animals to sort of create a space in which we can think about them new. This the free will stuff, the concept of death stuff. And then I jump into the science to say, the intermediaries are there. And so I think it's fair to say that we should be open to the possibility that some animals may commit suicidal behavior, engage in suicidal behavior under certain conditions. Um, and then after that, I talk about some of the ethical and social implications of sort of recognizing that. Well, one thing that I think is important to say about, about the, the framework that I lay out, and uh, again, a number of, of commentators and critics have missed this very important point, is that I do not believe that animals will commit human suicides. Um, I see suicidal behavior as a very vast category of self-destructive behaviors that can end um, in serious self-injury or self-annihilation. But it doesn't mean that, let's say, a dog or a mink or an orca is going to engage in the kinds of suicides that human beings engage in. Their suicidal behavior will look very different. And maybe it will not even be successful because... Committing suicide is, in fact, a difficult thing to do for an animal. Mm -hmm. But the fact that you have that, that emotional um, disturbance and the behavioral consequent and that we have the data for it um, suggests that the behavioral impulse, or at least the, uh, the I'm sorry, the, the suicidal behavior is already there in nature. And it's one of these categories um, that, again, we cannot restrict to only homo sapiens. It's much more widespread, and it doesn't mean that it will look the same. Just like today, we recognize that many other animals have communication or language, and it doesn't mean that their language is English or Spanish or Mandarin. It's, a, it's of a different order, but it still falls under the same large umbrella concept. You know, that's, uh, it's interesting. The very first time someone explained that way of thinking of, um, saying dogs can feel happy and sad, just like we do, but happy and sad for a dog may not be happy and sad for us. And it was, it was, again, it was Mark Beckoff. I think one of the very first times I spoke with him years ago, he, he kind of made that statement. And it's again, one of those little things that comes from that philosophy side that just absolutely changes the way you view everything. And I think that's probably my favorite part about this kind of research and conversation is you're not trying to say statistically this is valid, but you're asking questions and causing people to think in a new way. And that's very exciting to me. Uh, and there's a lot I'd love to I'd love to spend five days talking about this. I want to jump ahead to a couple of bits, though, because we have already been talking for a while. Um, 
epistemiology, epistemology, the the E word. Um, Epistemology. That's what I said. I'm sure. I'm pretty sure. Um, (laughs) Everyone else says it wrong. Uh, I, I, I found that again, once I figured out what it meant uh, in context, because that one sentence drove me insane, um, the study of knowledge eh, doesn't mean anything. Um, but when, when you start putting it into context, especially in the terms of humility, I thought that was very interesting. And I think it's, it's a vital conversation to have, maybe not even for, uh, for philosophers, because I, I would hope that in philosophy, this is something that's pretty clear but I think needs to come up significantly in both um, uh, life sciences, in natural sciences, and in advocacy. Um, in this, I don't know. Being comfortable saying we don't know, and that's okay. Uh, I find that often, and this isn't. Uh, I, this is a generalization, um, and it's from my perspective, of course. But I will at times read a study. And a biology study or an ecosystem analysis or, you know, one of those kinds of things. And it, it does not acknowledge uncertainty the way it should. Um, it does not acknowledge, and, and I think the best example, you actually kind of, you mentioned this in passing, and it's something I've been thinking about too, is people often talk about the nature of, ba- uh, the balance of nature. And when I say, well, no, I don't think there's really a balance in nature. They say, oh, well, it's like a teeter-totter. So it's always a little on one side or the other. And in my mind, it's kind of like a billion-sided teeter-totter with every side wanting to be the one that's up high. Um, and I feel like that's that's sort of a, a similar concept of saying, like, there's no way we know what's going to happen absolutely every time when we change something. Particularly, again, uh, the theme that we often hit on uh, with the show is st- talking about culls and very violent responses to wildlife. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen for sure. If we get rid of these wolves or those coyotes or these raccoons, we can make some guesstimates, but there's no, it, it is almost an impossibility to measure every single little aspect of it. And I think that's where this, this episteme, oh, come on. You, you guys just got to be like, you like Gary's Gary Aqua. That's what we'll call it from now on. Gary Aqua. Um, <laughs> It, when we're talking about epistemology, though, I think that's really important in, in the hard science. And then on the terms of advocacy, uh, we want there to be a simple truth because that makes it easier to argue for something. Um, and I think this is maybe a little more philosophical now, but to be able to say there's a lot about the situation we don't know um, and then treat it almost the way we would treat the precautionary principle um, of say we don't know. So let's let's pull on the reins a little bit. Um, but yes, I, really, I think that's right. And I think the concept of epistemic humility that I introduce is a a sort of version loosely of the precautionary principle um, in which what I what I aim to suggest is, of course, in ecology, we know that the relations are so hyper complex that we cannot track um, all possible outcomes to make any claim with absolute certainty. I forget who it was, it was an evolutionary biologist, uh, maybe Simpson, who said, um, nature is like playing chess on a thousand boards in which any one move on any board affects all the other ones at the same time. Um, It's just like the level of complexity and interdependence is so so high 
uh, that we are not the kinds of creatures that can track that complexity. And this is where the this is what the study of knowledge means. It means let's reflect on the limits of the human mind, of our cognitive structure, and then take those into account when we make knowledge claims. And so in relation to animal cognition, which is the sort of central theme here, the argument that I make is there is a lot that we don't know in relation to the animal mind, in part because we have been primed um, to have a very low, um, a low estimation of of the power of the minds of animals. We're already primed to see animals as less than or as less complex and less sophisticated. And so I find it frustrating when people draw negative conclusions very easily as if it's self-evident that animals don't have this capacity. Oh, well, obviously animals don't understand death. They couldn't possibly. Oh, well, let's wait a minute. How do we make sense of these behaviors? Oh, animals obviously do not have free will. That's just intuitive. It's an intuitive absolute truth. Oh, well, then how do we understand voluntary action? Or animals don't have a sense of self, so they couldn't possibly commit suicide because in order to do that, you need to be uh, the kind of being that has reflexivity. Well, what do we mean by that concept? And it seems like animals, many of them do have that. And so this, this notion of epistemic humility means when making claims about the inner lives, capacities, and potentials of other species, we must first and foremost reflect, reflect on the limits of our access to that object. One of those limits, as you pointed out at the beginning of this interview, is precisely the fact that we don't have access to linguistic linguistic reports. So that already is tricky territory. Another aspect is that we know how we see them, but we don't know how they see us. And that has to be part of the equation. Friends the Wall published a book uh, just two years ago that I think captures the spirit of, of epistemic humility really well in its title. And the title of the book is, Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? I have, a, is, I have a copy of that kicking around somewhere. Yeah, it's right a great book. I teach it to my Yeah, I, I recommend it. And one of the reasons I recommend it is because he fo focuses on a lot of scientific failures where the failure is imputed to the animal, but it's actually a failure of research design. We're not asking the right questions and we're not creating the right protocols. Um, more recently on the philosophical side of that, um, the French uh, philosopher um, uh, uh, Vincienne Desprez, uh, who is a Francophone, um, uh, she's French. I, actually, she might be Belgian. I, I don't remember. But she wrote a similar, um, a book that has a similar feel to it entitled, um, What Would Animals Say If We Ask the Right Questions? Mm -hmm. And it's in that same spirit as Franz de Waal's book, but with a much heavier philosophical um, emphasis. And these are the sorts of things that I find quite interesting, because um, often they turn into reflections about our own shortcomings, about our own limitations. And then when you begin from there, it hopefully will open up avenues for thinking about doing science differently. And that's one of my goals. I think we need to get a lot more clever and a lot more creative in the way in which we approach animals in scientific research. 
I, I, I absolutely agree. I think anytime we question ourselves, or I should rephrase it, I think we need to question ourselves more frequently. Um, you know, those who know me, I've been rolling in my brain the concepts of nonviolence and the cycle of violence and how these things interact with each other. Um, and I don't have an answer, but I feel like I keep coming up with new questions, and that's an extraordinarily satisfying exercise, I think, in, in personal insights. Um, and there's, so there's, again, there's so much in here, and I really, and this is why I'm talking so much. I swear I normally don't talk this much in an interview, but there is so much jam-packed into these, I think it's about 18 pages of actual um, uh, paper, and the rest is the uh, bibliography. The, the last um, two things I want to touch on. One of them is very quick, um, and that is I want to um, frame these. Your, I feel like your last three or four sentences are so well done, and I said that at the top of the interview. They are so eloquent, and I think so beautifully bring all of this together with context. Um, and I'm going to... Um, oh, my Skype's misbehaving still. Uh, it's making sound, and there we go. Um, so I just want to sort of go over a couple of these sentences because I feel like if you just put this at the beginning of the paper, this would be the most read thing on the internet, but that's my opinion, and I am very, very wrong according <laughs> to all of my ex-wives. Um, it is available online for free on the website of the journal Animal Sentience. Ah, there we go. Um, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll be linking to it, don't worry. Um, so you, you write... Um, uh, I'm just going to skip into the partway uh does this mean as they say uh or sorry does this mean that they as fenton argues using chimpanzees an example have the ability to say no no to other animals no to humans no to perhaps life itself can animals reflect on and reject their conditions of existence can a chimp mirroring socrates differentiate between a life and a life worth living these may sound like just abstract philosophical questions, but they have concrete ramifications for researchers, veterinarians, and even ethicists that we cannot ignore. Ethically, what might it mean that captivity drives some animals to the edge of self-annihilation? Similarly, what might it mean that we often use sentient beings that may be capable of consent in invasive biomedical research without their consent, whatever that may look like? That's the thing about philosophical questions. They seem distant until they hit home. And that's just my favorite thing in this whole paper. Um, and I, I feel like that, that conversation is what needs to happen. And I want to ask, and this is the big question, how do we make that conversation happen? I mean, it's, it's one thing uh, if we're, we're totally blunt about it in, you know, in the university classroom where people have chosen to go and learn and they've chosen this very specific niche of, you know, animal sentience, cognition and behavior. Um, and they are interested in philosophy and they want to put the time into it. Uh, like you and I have today, we've agreed to sit and talk about this for an hour. Um, but there are so many people out there who don't want to do it, who don't care. Um, and this ties in, I, I put out a call for questions and I'd say, I got several responses and I'd say 80% of them all circle back to this in essence of how do we have this conversation with the people who don't believe it to be true? Because they're the ones who need to hear it the most from my point of view, from my point of view as an advocate for animals and their welfare. Right. Well, that's the thing about skepticism, um, that it's a nasty little habit that once it's there, it's, it's very difficult to defeat. 
somebody who says, well, I just don't believe that. Well, I just don't believe that. Um, that there is no very clear pathway to overcome that. And this is why skepticism has been such um, a common enemy uh, throughout the history of philosophy, because us philosophers that are trained in this um, in this specific area of, of research, we know that the the skeptic will rear his or her head, and once they do that, um, it's not very easy to defeat the skeptical attitude with rational arguments or with evidence. Um, and and you're right that this is the issue: how to combat that, how to uh, work across the board. And uh, at least in my work uh, and in my in my experience, one of the really important things is, of course, to start fostering collaborations across disciplines. Um, I think there is a lot of value in collaborations between humanists and scientists, um, where scientists raise certain questions and humanists raise different questions. Um, and out of that tension, and sometimes it's a real tension, um, something else can emerge. Um, this also requires reading across disciplines. I could not have written this piece if I hadn't become familiar um, with the scientific literature on, on suicide, and if I wasn't familiar with the philosophical literature on consciousness and sentience, and if I wasn't familiar with the scientific literature on animal cognition. It required those three things because it's a topic at the intersection of these things. Um, and it, it, it just demands that one expand one's uh, bookshelf a little bit. Um, and finally, I think the thing that, and this is the most difficult one, there's a lot of resistance to conversations that raise questions about animal ethics. And I think most research on animals raises ethical questions because those ethical questions will inevitably turn around and call into question the ethics of the very scientific research that generated it, if that makes any sense. Um, and so I've attended a number of professional conferences uh, where, for example, uh, there have been scientists who are so reluctant to speak to me because they are absolutely committed to the belief that what they do is unimpeachable from an ethical standpoint. And so they do not want to hear anything that could have as a possible ramification the claim that we ought to rethink the, the, the ethical side of science. And so I think being willing to put oneself in question and being willing to listen to criticisms of one's own practices on both sides of the aisle is important. But I recognize that, that it's tough, especially when, um, you know, for many people, it's their career, it's their research protocol, it's their grant. Uh, but I don't think there's a way around it. Uh, if you're already so committed to a practice that you cannot question it, then I think you are somewhat in the position of the skeptic, even if you don't think of yourself in that way. And that is absolutely uh, uh, important. I mean, we should always be asking, can we do better? I think that is true of uh, scientists, of professors, of writers, of baseball players. Like, you, you got to say, hey, are we going to get better? Uh, can we be doing better? Can we cause less harm? Can we in some way do this? And if we don't ask those questions, we're never going to innovate. Uh, 
And it just, to me, it seems so logical to do that. And that's something I come up against a lot with the um, uh, North American model of wildlife conservation is the foundation for a lot of wildlife management practices. But when you actually break down that paper, uh, the, the white paper, so to speak, on it, there's serious foundational flaws in the thinking. It starts with all kinds of presumptions. And if you challenge those presumptions, the entire plan falls apart. But people don't want to challenge those. And I think you do write at one point um, that a lot of the problem is people are still living in how they were taught originally. Um, So the old methods, well, this is just what philosophy is. And you reference that with behaviorism. it was, it was the popular thing for a series of time, and people who come from that, that time period may still be stuck uh, learning that way. And sure enough, the people you're teaching today, the way you're teaching, may in 20 years still be kind of stuck in that, unless we take into account this, this introspection and challenge ourselves, um, which is not always easy or pleasant to do, um, especially when we start tying in our knowledge to our identity or our personal ethos. Uh, but I think that is absolutely vital. And it, it's a little surprising that it's maybe not taught more specifically that we need to be doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I did have uh, uh, two quick ones I want to ask you before I let you go. I swear I'm eventually going to let you get off the phone. Um, oh, no worries. And uh, so these are questions, as I said, uh, one of the things we're doing is letting uh, people who are patrons to the show ask questions ahead of time. Um, and I've got a few of those here. Uh, one of them I thought was great, and I'm going to uh, put content warnings all over the place on this thing. Um, but could the discussion, and this is a great philosophical question and psychological question, could this conversation, this this work on discussing non-human animal suicide be upsetting or distressing to someone who has lost someone to suicide or who has suicidal ideation? Or do you think that this could be a benefit in broadening our understanding? So I hope it's the latter, and I certainly hope it's not the former. Um, In terms of my own motivation for writing this piece, it really was to broaden our understanding of suicide as a concept and as a category and as a phenomenon um, to make room for behaviors that don't fit the classical definition. And many of these behaviors that don't fit the classical definition are human behaviors. So in relation just to human beings, the the concept of suicide, as traditionally understood, doesn't always work. And once you recognize that limitation already in relation to our species, um, it it seems like it's not particularly um, apt for dealing with other species. I, I would hope that people who are in uh, in the position that you describe um, don't have that reaction to this piece, since this piece um, grows out of an attempt to get us to think about suicide um, in a in a much more global way that hopefully will have uh, or could have. I don't outline uh, outline these in in the paper, but that could, in theory, have positive implications for early interventions or for providing better care for individuals that find themselves in the throng of psychopathology or uh, various kinds of depression, etc. Now, the one place where I could see people potentially having a, a negative reaction to this is if they think that I am saying, 
oh, well, an animal will have, an animal could replicate a human suicide because that seems to, um, I, I could I could imagine why that might be upsetting to somebody. And uh, this is why I clarified earlier that I do not think all suicides are the same. And I certainly don't think that animals would commit the kinds of suicides that humans commit. Um, the way in which a person might undergo a suicide depends on a lot of very complicated variables. And an animal, a non-human animal that might engage in suicidal behavior, um, that behavior won't look like human behavior because it's a different species undergoing a set of different experiences with some underlying similarities. Um, and so I hope that's not the case because in no way is this intended to trivialize what is one of the most um, uh, intense and emotionally um, charged um, acts that somebody can experience either directly or indirectly via somebody else, which is suicide. I mean, it's a very serious topic. And, and I wrote this paper with that seriousness in mind. Well, and I can say, I mean, I'm coming from this with a, from a place of extraordinary privilege. I recognize that, uh, you know, cisgender white guy from the suburbs in an affluent family, I'm privileged. So I always try and put that out there uh, it, to provide the context, but also as someone who's lived their whole life with mental health issues, for me, it's, it's almost kind of a beautiful thing to see that this is not a uniquely human or unique part of some strange illness, but this is that there is a global implication to this and that there are more things that tie us together and that we can maybe learn more. We can learn how to help each other um, through this kind of conversation. So for me, I see a, a wonderful positivity from that, um, though I do appreciate how some people and I think that comes up again, that's that comes up a lot in advocacy when we compare. And I don't think you're comparing. You are bringing light to the subject just in general, which is a positive thing. Um, another one from Billy, which I quite like. Uh, there are people in the world who think it's not just acceptable to kill animals and to be potentially cruel to them, but that it's a fun, good thing. It's good for the environment. It's good for the animals overall. And this isn't some of the really out there hunting theories and trapping theories, but there are people there who are wholly convinced that by going out and, for example, taking the bears with all the biggest heads or the, the bucks with the biggest horns uh, once a year, they're somehow helping the environment. So as we're sort of struggling with that, we're also now having this really in-depth philosophical conversation about the possibility of suicide in animals. Is uh, While we're still struggling to get some people to see non-human animals as beings worthy of a conversation, let alone a conversation of this depth, should we be focusing on one or the other, or can each conversation help the other? Well, I suspect it's the second of those two, because our views of who animals are depend, by and large, on our assessment of the things that we think they're capable of doing. So if you have a very low view of animals in which they're just sort of these maybe like organic furniture that sit around the house or around uh, the world for human exploitation, for human um, abuse, for human violence, uh, maybe for some of the people who hold that view, 
um, reading a paper like this might at the very least make them pause for a moment. Um, although I don't know if that's a, uh, an idealistic interpretation of, of um, the power of academic writing. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I think by, by and large, academics write, write and read academic writing, which very rarely sort of gets out there in a very, um, very rarely does academic writing um, influence the world in, in very tractable ways that you could pinpoint this person changed their view because they read this one article. Typically, but it has to do with vaccines and diet fads. <laughs> uh, but hopefully, it can have a cumulative effect. And you never know what will change somebody's mind. But I don't know. Um, I agree that, unfortunately, we are at a stage in which the vast majority of people explicitly or implicitly um, view animals as expendable and I, there is no best way to illustrate this than to say that for the vast majority of people, our most systematic engagement with animals is at the dinner table um, our, uh, or as subjects in uh, biomedical research that produces the drugs that we take or the treatments that we undergo. And so human practices have a pretty high, high cost for animals, um, whether it will change the views of those people that simply don't care about animals. I doubt it. Um, but I'm not sure that any academic article could change the mind of those people. Um, hopefully there are other mechanisms um, to improve the lot of animals in the face of these human attitudes. To read David's paper, follow the links on this week's show notes or on the podcast blog at thefurbears.com. I am so genuinely thankful for David for sitting and talking with me for so long, especially since I was five minutes late starting and then accidentally the papers with all my notes uh, fell over the floor, which I then had to pick up and make noises. This is a fascinating subject, and I strongly encourage you to check out the paper. It has the potential to challenge the way you think, and that is a wonderful opportunity. I also want to thank all of you for checking out this interview, particularly if you stuck with it to now. You are a champion. Make sure you're following me on Facebook and Twitter at Defender Radio and Instagram at Howie Michael to find out what I'm up to, get in on things like asking interviewees questions, which will only be a Patreon reward soon, and you'll also get lots of pictures of JJ. That alone is worth clicking to follow. And if you have a second, like and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen. It helps new people find us and gets the word out about the evolution of our compassionate world. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears reminding you to be kind, stay informed, and stay strong. Stay strong.